paints. And um, so far we had first two insights, which is called seeing here, translated as seeing. Sometimes it's translated as in seeing, whatever it is, it's inside. And then by restraining, restraining the uh, sense faculties, and then by using properly, using our requisites in the proper way, the um, food and the shelter and the clothing and the medicine, she's using it properly, just as using, but using it properly. Now we come to enduring. What things can be abandoned by enduring? Here a bhikkhu reflecting wisely bears cold, heat, hunger, thirst, and contact with flies, wind, burning, and creeping things. He endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words and arisen bodily feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing to life. So in other words, bearing all that, but it needs to be said and understood that the bearing of it means with equanimity and doesn't mean with um, ejection or gritting one's teeth or hoping they'll go away. In other words, suppressing, trying to suppress the um, dislike, but the enduring means actually being even-minded in the face of all these unpleasantnesses. Burning and creeping things. Hmm. Creepers in the forest, I suppose. Ill-spoken, unwelcome words. This is usually one of the things that we don't bear up very well under. At that time, we can remember the ear contact that we had in another uh, discourse that it's nothing but ear contact. We can also remember that everybody consists of aggregates and um, consists of uh, elements. So what is there to get upset about? If somebody is upset and speaks ill and unwelcome words, well, you know, that doesn't uh, invite us to be equally upset. The other person's already upset. And this is usually the thing that we have least control over, our reactions to these words which we do not think are appreciative of us. So insight will help us a great deal to endure, to be there but not react unpleasantly. Bodily feelings. Bodily feelings which are unpleasant, painful, racking, sharp and piercing, disagreeable, distressing and menacing to life. Well, in order to endure those feelings which are menacing to life, one has already has had to come to terms with one's own death. Because if something is menacing to life, anyone else will react by either running away or doing something to get out of it. So if we haven't come to terms with our own death yet, 
obviously we're going to react. Now, in the pure inside path, it's often uh, recommended to see one's own death. But we do that the same way also when we do the um, path which goes through calm, because the Buddha did mention that unless we have an actual experience of our own death in meditation, we won't be able to let go of self. So it is a very important way to direct the mind. And that's what all these channel grounds meditations are for. Nine of them, if you remember, in the uh, Foundations of Mindfulness Discourse. Different ways of seeing oneself dead, in other words. Sometimes it happens spontaneously in a meditation that there is a death experience, or a a near-death experience, and um, what usually happens is that one tries to get out of it. But that doesn't help. We have to go through with it. Because only when we have the um, acceptance of our own death can we come to full life. And uh, that life is then without fear and without that clinging which makes life so difficult clinging to that which we think we ought to have whether it's material or emotional but having gone through the death experience and accepted it and gone through with it a lot of that falls away not all of it but a lot of it falls away sometimes people have a spontaneous experience of wild animals attacking them I mean sitting in a room like this I don't know I don't mean being in the jungle (laughs) so um, and of course uh, the immediate response to that is uh, you know I want to get out of this I'm opening my eyes I won't have any part of this but should this ever happen to anyone keep your eyes closed and let the animal devour you because it is actually a going through the giving up of the craving to be. It's the enduring of anything that's menacing to life means that one really goes through with it. One endures it to the very end. Should it not happen spontaneously, it doesn't happen like that to everybody, one can deliberately bring it about by reconnecting, using the contemplations. I'm of the nature to decay, disease, and die. See those three as our law of nature to which we are subject. And if we do put ourselves in that condition that not just thinking about it, that's not good enough, but it is a good starting point. It directs the mind properly. And then having thought about it and having had that trigger, then actually feeling it, feeling what it's like to 
be killed in any manner or form which uh, one happens to think of. It also helps, of course, greatly to go along with unpleasant body feelings if one has gone through with it and hunger, thirst, cold and heat. So wild taints and fever of the farmer might arise in one who did not endure. There are no taints and fever of the farmer in one who endures. These are called the taints that can be abandoned by endurance. Now obviously when it says to it that the taints are abandoned, it means arahanship. Everybody else got taints. So it's a little more than just sitting through an hour's meditation and saying, oh, I'm going to get to the end of it. It's, it's the actual fact of letting go of any personal concern for, for being here. We are here as long as this body holds up. So the word enduring isn't strong enough, really, to denote the strength of this commitment. And the next, next thing is by avoiding. What taints can be abandoned by avoiding? Here a bhikkhu, reflecting wisely, avoids a savage elephant, savage horse, savage bull, savage dog, snake, a stump, a bramble patch, a chasm, a cliff, a cesspit, a sewer. Reflecting wisely, he avoids sitting on unsuitable seats wandering to unsuitable resorts, frequenting bad friends, such that wise companions in the holy life might believe to be evidence of evil doing. Now here, this is protection. We don't put ourselves into situations which are obviously um, designed to arouse either fear or ill will in us. I mean, if a savage elephant attacks us, it's very hard for a non-arahant to have no ill will towards that elephant is not worse. So we try to get into a protected environment which also concerns, of course, people. And this is a very important aspect, not frequenting bad friends. The, uh, companionship is mentioned by the Buddha so many times that one must finally understand that he thinks it's extremely important how and with whom we spend our time one of the most famous aspects of that is when Venerable Ananda his um, cousin and uh, attendant asked, said to him once sir our good friend is half of the holy life or half of the spiritual life and the Buddha replied do not say so Ananda a good friend is the whole of the spiritual life now a good friend in Pali is a Karyana Mitta a Mitta is a friend and a Karyana is of goodness concern we often see in the commentaries that the uh, meditation teacher is considered to be the Karyana Mitta, but 
that isn't enough because we see so many people in our lives and we frequent so many different situations where there are people far more likely than savage elephants I should say or savage bulls I mean they just don't come around that often but people come around constantly so we need to have a criteria what we do so the uh, idea behind this is that bad friends influence us in a bad way and good friends will influence us in a good way birds of a feather flock together those that do what we do may be the ones that we naturally gravitate towards there are many discourses by the Buddha describing good and bad friends one of the um, most explicit discourses on good and bad friends is the Sigalavada Sutta it's a discourse to a young man called Sigala who didn't want any part of religious life and uh, the Buddha gives him an explanation which he can't deny and um, he, he describes <coughs> bad friends and he describes good friends if I'm slow it's because it's in German <laughs> bad friends sleep long they are easily irritated they have bad will and they are um, they're not generous they give little and ask for much they flatter are not truthful they comply with their duties only out of fear they look for their own advantage when there's a possibility to help they are either in unable or unwilling they say no to the good and yes to the bad and they speak badly about oneself behind one's back now these are the kind of people we should avoid but then there's a long list of what a good friend is like and it isn't only that we need to look for good friends we also need to learn to be a good friend it is an an enrichment in life and a widening of one's abilities which makes life much more fulfilling and gives one a depth of experience a good friend is helpful he's equanimous even-minded in happiness and sadness gives good advice and is compassionate when oneself is experiencing some um, grief he's reliable and faithful 
He protects the friend's possessions. Gives more than he requests. He opens himself up and tells the friend his secrets. But he protects your secrets. He's willing to sacrifice himself for you. He encourages you to do the good and holds you back from doing bad things. Explains new things, unknown things, and shows you the way to pure happiness and joy. He's happy when you feel well, when you're well, everything goes well with you. And he stops others from speaking badly about you. And he praises those who speak good about you. All that makes a good friend. Now this is an interesting um, list of things which we should check ourselves against. Friendship is so highly prized in all cultures that people make poems about them, write books about it. Here are a few sayings by some poets and writers. If you give a person all beauties of the world, what would it do to him if he didn't have a friend that he could tell that to? Many great men never believed in themselves if they didn't have good friends who discovered them. A true friend helps us more to be happy than 1,000 enemies could do to make us unhappy. It's the greatest solace in life to have a friend to whom one can open one's heart and who will support one. The uh, idea of a good friend is that we find somebody who is already treading the spiritual path has gone a few steps ahead so that that person can help us. At least somebody who supports our spiritual uh, endeavors and can give us good advice when things are, are difficult for us. Someone who's available and trustworthy, faithful, open, honest. To learn to be just that 
is a valuable thing to do so that we ourselves become the spiritual friends of others. It's difficult enough to know what to do on the spiritual path under all circumstances so that if we have someone who can assist us and whom we can assist is a great joy and it gives us a basis on which to check ourselves because if we have an honest friend that person should be honest enough to tell us when we're going wrong just as they must be able to accept when we tell them it's always necessary of course to, to have those discussions with the greatest of love and compassion criticizing and blaming doesn't help anybody neither the one who does it nor the one who's being done to but a well thought out inquiry into certain aspects of one's being well thought out and well presented may be very helpful to be critical is useless because it only means that one is being critical of oneself so the friendships that we make are very important and with the hindrances that we have and that the Buddha talked about the common antidote for all five of them is noble friends and noble conversations sometimes if we don't have those kind of friends we will have to go and search for them that too is valid why not there are so many people in the world surely there must be somebody where we live who is also interested in a spiritual path four billion people I think I mean there must be somebody now if we have friends of long standing who have no interest at all in the spiritual life we may be able through love and compassion and friendship and care to interest them not by trying to be a missionary but by just being with them and maybe telling of our own experiences or interests we can be their good friend if they don't want to hear it well we can still be their good friend but everybody needs also some friends which can be helpful to them even the Buddha had Ananda as his friend and uh, while an arahant fully enlightened 
is not in need of a friend, it certainly is helpful to have one. Everybody else certainly needs them. We have to be careful with whom we associate. So because we are highly unlikely to fall into a sewer or a cesspit and uh, are certainly, well, unsuitable resorts, that does that mean something for us too? Um, gambling halls where people have, uh, take drugs, um, parties where there's a lot of alcohol. These are unsuitable places for a person who's on a spiritual path. Um, nightclubs, discotheques, all this, the things where people try to um, distract themselves from their dukkha by having strong sense contacts. And another thing which is being said is that we should avoid these bad friends because other people might take that as evidence that we ourselves are like them. And uh, then we would have a more difficult time to have good friends because they might get an opinion about us. Are there any questions about any of this? Someone <coughs> what you meant um, when you said that if one was critical, one was really being critical of oneself. Well, being critical is a is a characteristic, and uh, to have that characteristic means that one has changed now focus, which usually one is tr- critical of oneself, and so therefore critical of others and it's not uh, helpful in either situation. Uh, A wise um, inquiry into one's own actions and reactions may help one to gently change them the same as one does with someone else. Being critical is uh, usually a negative frame of mind. That one would have that for towards oneself too. Therefore, to others. Anything else? I had a question about, I was thinking about this today, and talking about um, seeking emotional support as being part of craving to be, I believe, actually. And do you see that as, in this context, with good friends and choosing good friends and all of that? Um, I mean, everybody needs a good friend but um, do you see uh, the emotional support that you were talking about as as the influence of bad companions? No, not necessarily. Emotional support is when you need people around you and can't be without them. Having a good friend doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have that friend around you all the time. And emotional support is also a person who flatters you, and uh, is uh, very agreeable to everything and 
you know, everything is fine and tells you how wonderful you are, instead of really um, being attentive, helpful, and uh, very honest without being critical. A good friend is a person that is also practicing spiritual life. So emotional support is when you can't be without someone. That's when you're searching for emotional support. Naturally, a friend does give you some support, but it should hopefully be on the spiritual path. So it's an inability to stand alone. Yes. That's right. Why do you folks with bad friends who you don't want to be friends with, but whom you don't want to say, don't want to... Mm. to come to you or whatever. If you want to have peace within yourself, you obviously have to have peace with people around you. Sure. Mm. But you, if you know somebody that you don't really want to have anything to do with, but they want to have something to do with you, is that it? Yes, well, you can fade it out, sort of. You know, they ring you up and want you to come and they say, well, I'm sorry, tonight I really haven't got the time because I've got to read a good book and then you sit down and read a good book. <laughs> and next time they ring and you again you're not coming. And if this, you've told them five times that, you know, you can't make it, I think they'll stop ringing. So you don't find that hypocritical idea? Well, you're not... Well, if you had told them you're going to read a good book, you might as well sit down and do it, you know. <laughs> Yes, on occasion you can say that, but it usually aggravates the situation. Yes. I have said it. I have said it to somebody um, and said, you know, who I thought was a friend. And I said, you know, what you've done there, that was not the action of a good friend. And I thought, and I'd just given a dumber talk on being a good friend with, with all these bits and pieces that I just read out the whole thing for an hour and a half. And uh, it didn't help at all to say that, on the contrary. So it's not advisable to say that. <laughs> and uh, one would have thought, you know, after having heard it for an hour and a half, that somebody might get an idea of what it means, but it didn't. We well, can try. Leave the people with bad feelings about you, and that's what. If you tell them that you can't come? Yeah. I mean, I have several <laughs> or so-called in Holland, which I, you know, when I come back, it starts all over again. Mm. And you want to tell them that you don't have, you can't tell them that you haven't got the time? They won't, they don't think that's true or what? I have been, to my, I have been hypocritical all these times when I was in Holland just by saying, uh, oh, I have to go away today, or I have mm. to do that, or this, or a book, or whatever. Mm. And uh, that's why they come back all the time, you know? And you want to make an end to it by saying that uh, you don't feel you have anything in common. Yes. Okay, you can do that. You can sit down with them, give them enough time, not just superficial, enough time to sit down with them and tell them what you've been doing since you've been away, right? 
and say that you don't feel that they would be interested in that and because you feel that that you haven't got anything to talk about but you've got to say it in a very detailed manner so that they really understand what it's all about and if they then understand they may not be hurt I dare say they still feel hurt nobody wants to be rejected even for the best of them but if you want to be very honest and try your best like that you can and then maybe at the end of the conversation uh, you haven't got Dutch books in that. well anyway if you can find a Dutch book <laughs> hand them a book and say this says what I'm doing Mm. I'm sure they won't like you they won't like you it's very difficult it is difficult because one does swim against the stream and everybody's going downstream with the current and they're all yelling at you saying look how easy it is why don't you swim with us you know and you're paddling all your might against the current upstream you know against all the debris that's floating around and uh, you can't have you know you can't hang on to those people that are going downstream because you know very well that you're going towards the source where everything is pure but that all these other bits of debris that are floating downstream are going to think you're pretty silly well that can't be helped it's very difficult to make them understand even in one's own family I would say it's difficult to understand probably the most difficult difficult enough but if you want to do it on you know really honestly you can try that I uh, doubt very much that it's successful because if it is successful then you are confronting a person who will be interested in what you're doing and then you can talk together and if it's people who don't know what you're talking about they won't like it but maybe they'll be you know a little smoother because I see what you're saying that you have said before that I'm going to read a book and it hasn't you know stopped anything and also some of them they are interested but then well they think a lot yeah very different life and that's difficult too because I still find I have a big feeling for it oh feeling, yes. yes because well I know from 20 years ago so. mm. but it's that yes but that is a bit that's clinging there clinging to the past mm. if you don't think that you can help them no reason to be with them. I think I can help them. Well, if you think you can help them, then you should try. But it still it does influence my um, way of life too, because I mean, if if you um, if that that person asked me to come and have dinner, mm. and that's of course in his way or in her way of mm. having dinner with mm. whatever yes well so you go mm. into that sort of scene 
Sure, but if you think you can help them, you have to be strong enough to be able to protect yourself from any influence. Because if you don't, if you can be influenced, you can no longer help them. You'll have to check that out yourself. Mm. And see how that goes. It's not an easy thing to do, especially when you come back, you know, to your home country after having been away quite a while. Well, if everything goes wrong, you can ring me in Germany. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll discuss it again. <laughs> yes. Um, I have a question on the same subject. I'm not quite sure how one would handle it. It's to do with possibly helping someone, and the experience that one has found is that that's often used by the other person in order to maintain some kind of connection. In other words, they'll play on that, the fact that you're helping them. Sure. And they'll actually make it an emotional attachment. Yes. And I found that in that situation, particular situation I'm thinking of, the other person will sometimes uh, put a negative uh, attribute out verbally and say, well, you know, that's you're like that too, mm. you know, meaning myself. Mm. And one honestly looks inside and one finds that yes, there, there has been or there is some, some kind of recognition at least of what's being said. Um, but it feels as if it's like destructive. There's, there's a destructive mm. feedback one is getting, it's not a sort of positive mm. one. I wondered really that my experience has been that there's no way out of that other than to remain relatively silent and just not frequent that person anymore. Yes, there is no other way. There's absolutely no other way because we are, influ- we, are, we, are we can be influenced. We can't be, we are not totally protected. And the Buddha says, avoid. Avoid them because we have only a lim- limited amount of energy and that has to be used in the right way. And if we feel that we are together with a destructive uh, situation of any form, we should avoid it. I mean, he's mentioning cesspits and snakes and then bramble patches. They're all destructive situations. So, and we need to protect ourselves. It's absolutely essential. The the real sort of hook for myself was that if, if something is aimed at one, you know, it's hard to be perfect, and you know, if, if there is some truth in what's said, mm, sure, that's okay. Still, it's not a that's okay. Yeah. I see. If somebody says the truth about oneself in a destructive manner, and one sees, oh, he, you know, he's actually right. One still doesn't have to stick around in that situation. I mean, one has learned something about oneself. It's okay, you know, but one doesn't have to stay in a destructive situation because it's very detrimental to the meditation. It's extremely detrimental to jhanas. I mean, jhanas really have to be protected. And we have, you know, our situations in the world are usually, anyway, pretty open to lots of influences. It's not like a forest monastery in Thailand where everybody, you know, just falls down on their face and does like this and then, you know, that's it. You know, 
nobody's going to dare attack a bhikkhu and say, look, you, you know, you're doing something wrong. So that's a very protective environment. So we are not that protected anyway in the West. So we need to protect ourselves. As he says, avoid these things. And even if that person says the right thing, fine. So we learn something. Mm-hmm. Actually, these are refined forms of blackmail, of mental blackmail. <laughs> yeah, emotional blackmail. Very often. Very refined. <laughs> that happens quite often. Yes, emotional blackmail. Um, well, those things should be avoided. It, it's really, it's really destructive, and especially if one can do the jhanas. They can really destroy the uh, the energy that um, is needed to do it with. And this is such a wonderful thing to have for one's mind that uh, one does need to protect. There has to be a certain, well, <laughs> one could say selfishness in it. One of the loving-kindness contemplations is, may I be able to protect my own happiness? And so we have to know what's my happiness. That doesn't mean clinging to the jhanas. It just means being able to do them and have an environment where that energy is also transmittable to other people. You can only transmit it in a pure environment. When there's an impurity in the environment, the transmission of it becomes more and more difficult. So it's a question. Yeah. Um, I, I was wondering too, um, uh, one of your other um, Dharma talks, you were saying that um, in friendship and everything, once the ego support um, is withdrawn or whatever, it breaks down. And it doesn't sound like me. Oh, well. What you're just saying. <laughs> um, I, I was wondering, I mean, looking at, you know, my own friendships and everything, I mean, that's been the case. Like, say something's happened and I've really wanted to um, pursue the truth. Mm. And the other people haven't, time and time and time again, you know, rather not sort of face it or whatever. And like, I just wondered why that why that happens. Is it then your friendship broke down? Yes. Yes. Um, well, <laughs> there you see there are those that are on one same level that we can be friends with. Now, since everybody looks alike, everybody's got two legs and two eyes and a nose and then the hair and all the rest of it, you can't tell right away. I mean, it's <laughs> impossible. You've got to know people, right? The Buddha said, you have to know a person very well. The commentary says, very well means 12 years. Yes, and have heard that person talk many, many times before you know whom you've got in front of you. The commentary say 12 years, mind you. Um, that, whoever was that commentator, we don't know. The Buddha says, a long time. You have to be together with a person for a long time and hear, hear that person speak often before you know who, who it is. So there are those people that you are on your own level that one can discuss matters with which are a little deeper than just ordinary everyday uh, affairs. But then there are those who can't handle that. 
So you've got to stay with them if you talk to them on everyday affairs. I mean, they just don't want to know about it. And they don't want to know about their own shortcomings, and they don't want to know about their spiritual possibilities. They just want to, you know, live as easily as possible. So one has to be able to discriminate who one's got in front of one. I mean, it's not easy. You know, it's not an easy thing to do because, as I say, everybody looks alike, you know. And sometimes people do say some clever things and you think, oh, he's very intelligent. I can talk to that person. And then it turns out they don't want to hear anything you've got to say. happens all the time. And if one does become um, uh, honest, uh, it can break the friendship down. As I just mentioned, I said to this person, oh, that wasn't what a good friend does. And uh, that was the end of that. No friend anymore. On the contrary, an enemy. (laughs) So that that's not very good for him is another story. It's got nothing to do with it. I mean, that was the result of saying that's not what a good friend does. And that wasn't a very um, elaborate statement of anything, was it? <laughs> so people people can't handle much. Yeah, yeah I thought it was a mild, yeah. but apparently it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I just find it so extraordinary, you know, um, that, you know, that mm. people can't handle much. And, uh, well, it's there. of themselves, then, you know, it becomes awful for them. They can only live with that image. It makes them terribly brittle. Such people are very brittle because they so easily fall apart because that image cannot be uh, supported all the time because it's a fantasy. So, and since nobody exactly knows what fantasy they're perverting in their heads, how would one know how to support it all the time? So they're having a rough time. So it's um, compassion. That's all. The less of an image we have of ourselves, the easier we can deal with whatever is happening. So we have avoiding us. Now comes removing what things can be abandoned by removing? Here a bhikkhu, reflecting wisely, does not endure an arisen thought affected by sensual desire, ill will, cruelty. He abandons it, removes it, does away with it, annihilates it. He does not endure arisen, evil, unprofitable phenomena. He abandons them, removes them, does away with and annihilates them. Well, these are the... Um, uh, supreme efforts about one's thinking aspect if there is an unwholesome thought one does not continue that one removes it, does away with it, annihilates it annihilation uh, is rather um, a strong thing to do abandons, removes, does away, annihilates yes um, Actually, the Buddha gave five different ways of dealing with distracting or 
um, un- in meditation or unprofitable, unwholesome thoughts in daily living. And the first one is the substitution, which is the uh, uh, most gentle one. That's um, the simile is that a carpenter has put a plug of wood in the wall and finds that it's uh, not big enough, so he gently removes it and puts in a bigger plug. It's a substitution. And the next thing is um, shame. One is ashamed to be seen with uh, or to be existing with an unprofitable, unwholesome thought. And the simile is that uh, young man and young lady are coming out on all their finery and then when they're out in the street they find that each one is carrying a dead carcass of an animal around their necks. So they don't like to be seen like that. So they go back in and take it off. It's the same with our thoughts. We shouldn't be seen with them. And uh, the third one is the uh, um, paying no attention to it, which is uh, the simile is that one sees an acquaintance on the other side of the street, but one doesn't go over and shake his hand, but uh, keeps on going and pays no attention to it. And the fourth one is that one realizes how uncomfortable the unwholesome thought is and uh, makes oneself more comfortable with a wholesome one. And the fifth one is actually suppression. If nothing has helped, then suppressing. And the simile given is that a big strong man uh, drowns a small uh, puny one and hold them underwater until he's drowned. In other words, we suppress the um, uh, unwholesome thought because all the other four methods haven't worked. That's the annihilation one. The first one, of course, is the uh, um, abandoning and then removing death away with an annihilation. So that's about one's um, mental, mental content, the content of the mind which is also helped in the meditation through the labeling and through our mindfulness of our mental states hmm, in daily living. So we have the enduring, which means really with equanimity. We have the avoiding, keeping away from protecting ourselves. A very important one, that avoiding one. Because in our, in our daily lives, although the Buddha mentioned things that we never come across, I mean, you know, savage horses and things like that, and cliffs and cesspits, but we come across so many things that are even more dangerous to us than these that are mentioned here. All the destructions that exist in our society, uh, starting with the television set, and with these dreadful magazines that are on every newsstand, and the newspapers themselves, and uh, the um, conversations people have, all these are cesspits. We don't have to avoid cesspits. We have to avoid what our society is putting out. And we have to protect ourselves. And, of course, the right kind of people, to be with the right kind of people. And removing is the thought. The, uh, the removing of the thoughts. And the last one is to abandon, the taints are abandoned by developing. And developing what? Developing the seven factors of enlightenment. Now we have already uh, talked about those. 
mindfulness. Oh, well, let's see. Here, Biko reflecting wisely develops the mindfulness enlightenment factor, which has seclusion, passionlessness, and cessation for its support and changes to relinquishment. The enlightenment factor of mindfulness is, of course, perfect mindfulness, and it has seclusion from sensual desire. It has passionlessness. There's no desire for sensual gratification. And it has cessation, cessation of mental factors as its support. And as it has all these supports, it changes to relinquishing, relinquishing self. Mindfulness does all that. Now the others do exactly the same. The second one is the investigation of the Dhamma. I would say, investigation of phenomena. And it has the same. It has seclusion, passionlessness and cessation for its support and changes to relinquishment. Energy, then comes the four of the four first jhanas. This, this one is called here happiness. Maybe we'll call it the, um, bliss, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. And each one of them has seclusion from the sensual uh, desires. It has naturally the passionlessness when there's no sensual desire. And it has the cessation of mental factors for support. And then it can change to relinquishment of, of self. Each one of the seven can do it. All seven together can do it. So first, uh, the, uh, the sutta goes to tell us about all the things that we can um, do in order to strengthen these enlightenment factors and then to develop them within us. Now there's a conclusion, which I'll just read out. Huh? As soon as the bhikkhus taints, that can be abandoned by seeing through insight have been so abandoned as his things that can be abandoned by restraining have been so abandoned have been abandoned by using rightly have been abandoned by avoiding by enduring by removing has been abandoned by developing that he is called a bhikkhu then he is called a bhikkhu who dwells restrained with the restraint of all the taints he has severed craving flung off the fetters and has made an end of suffering with the complete penetration of conceit the word conceit is interesting it's mano in, in, in Pali and they, even the third uh, third path uh, still has it the um, the uh, non-returner it doesn't necessarily mean that a person is conceited I mean that's a very gross way of having conceit you know that if a person is actually conceited and always think that they're better than everybody else but what it means is that it's still there is still some conceit because there's still the me uh, feeling inside 
and with that little bit of conceit there is still not that feeling of that one is really nothing that doesn't mean that one is less than anybody it just means that there's nobody there to be anything neither less nor more nor equal and this is the way the Buddha taught neither less nor more nor equal since you're not there so who can you be less to more to or equal to so this conceit is this fine remaining idea that there is somebody there so what is being said here is that the removal of the taints is arahantship which is quite uh, true because that's you know when they're completely removed then there's full enlightenment and the removal of conceit means arahantship flung off all the fetters has made an end of suffering with a complete penetration of conceit that was what the blessed one said the bhikkhus were satisfied they delighted in the blessed one's words um, the matter of conceit is an interesting well, quite an interesting story at the time of the Buddha the story says that there was um, a party of bhikkhus of monks going into the forest and uh, just for a walk there was one senior one and then the others were just junior to him and as they were walking in the forest some bandits came and uh, wanted uh, to get some uh, valuables from them well the senior bhikkhu said well we don't have anything we can't give you anything sorry so the the uh, head bandit said well all right then we'll take one of you as a um, hostage and uh, then when we'll ask for some um, valuables so that you can be set free again and we'll even let you pick which one you want to send along with us as, an, as a hostage and the uh, senior Biko remained quiet didn't say anything and the head bandit was getting very uh, impatient with him and said well come on come on pick one which one are we taking and uh, the head Biko said well you know there's nothing I can say about that and uh, so the head Biko, uh, bandit said well why why can't you pick one he said, well, look, he said, if I pick one of these because that means that he's not as important as me. If I pick myself, that means I'm not as important as, important as them. So, since we're not really here, what is there to pick? And the head bandit was so confused by that that he <laughs> let them go. <laughs> he let them all go free. So you can't pick one that is less than you and you can't pick one that's more than you. There's nobody there anyway. So is there any questions about this taints that we abandon and the taints that we then get rid of by developing? Thrown into the mind as a spanner into a wheel, almost. 
Well, yes, I can tell you what I do. I look at it and say, gee, am I lucky that I'm not doing that anymore? <laughs> Works perfectly. <laughs> it's a power of positive thinking. You know, I mean, I look at it and say, gee, wonderful. No more of this. Well, I'm not that person anymore. Well, that also, of course, uh, but that isn't very often, <coughs> well, it's quite true, of course, but it takes, um, you see, it's an emotional reaction. Do you have an emotional reaction to all the rubbish one has done in the past, right? There's an emotion coming up. Yes. So you have to counteract that, counteract that by an emotion and not by a thought. So the counteraction is the emotion of, gee, I'm glad I'm not doing this anymore. That is also an emotion. It's a happiness that comes up. And that's it's all gone. It does seem to strike when the mind is more down than up. You know, it, it sort of keeps mm. you when you're down, as it were. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it always keeps people in that down. It's very unfair, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but the thing to do is not to allow the mind to go down. To watch it. You see, these four supreme efforts, which I hope everybody remembers without having to look in any notebooks, um, the unwholesome thought, which has not yet arisen, not to let it arise, that is the trick. That's the crux of the matter. Not to let it arise. And the thing is, that an unwholesome thought, which has not yet arisen, has sort of like a, a forerunners. It has heralds, which is heralding its arrival. And those, those heralds are uh, heavy, grayish feelings. Um, they are um, dense, dense feelings. So when that arises, immediately a wholesome thought. Not allowed to have the unwholesome thought come. Because following that herald of the feeling comes already that unwholesome thought. Look at what terrible things I did in the past. Am and I an awful person? So to become aware through mindfulness, is the only defense system we have, that this is coming. Because there's a feeling going, coming. Sort of. It's at the actually feels, it's quite funny, it actually feels as if this feeling is in the mind and sort of pulling this unwholesome thought behind, as if it's like a, a, a set of forces pulling this unwholesome, feel, uh, unwholesome thought behind. And uh, if one has watched, I mean, these are just similes, I mean, it's not doing any of that. And uh, as soon as one knows this unwholesome, unpleasant feeling, to put a wholesome thought in the mind immediately and then the mind stays even and even when it gets a little downward pull immediately comes back to even it's the only way that there is worth living any other way is like being on a seesaw a seesaw that goes up and which feels very unsafe up there because one is wobbling about and has to hang on with the elation and then goes down with a plonk onto the ground which hurts and uh, the equilibrium is 
the fulcrum. That's where we need to be. So that is a, um, you know, sort of like a point to watch that feeling. Anything else? I have a question related to what we were talking about yesterday again. All right. Um, we were talking about craving to be an ambition um, in terms of career goals and things like that. How does how do we after being you know completely out of that and going back to it and doing two years of spiritual practice and teaching? How do you reconcile, you know, kind of what's, you know, kind of part of craving to be type of ambition and what's healthy ambition or, you know, just what needs to be done? How do you, can you talk about that a little bit? The only healthy ambition is is to get rid of craving. There is no other healthy ambition. And that doesn't make any money. <laughs> it does save a lot of money. It does. Sure does. <laughs> That's true. It out. I don't know. I've never tried. <laughs> but... Uh, what you're referring to is life in the world as opposed to life in a, in a spiritual environment. And uh, in a spiritual environment, you also got to clean toilets. So that's fine, you know. But uh, we never find out who's the best toilet cleaner. I mean, it doesn't matter. Nobody's getting paid for it anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I mean, the body's got to be looked after. It, it just depends what one wants to do with one's life. It's a matter of priorities. Any ambition is an ego support. It doesn't matter which one. I want to help the world. I don't want them to be hungry. I want to... It doesn't matter which one it is. It's all an ego support. And the ego is cunning, and the mind's even more cunning. So it can dis- disguise all these uh, wonderful ambitions that people have to make them seem to be uh, highly spiritual, which is called social activism. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's certainly better than, than, uh, you know, many other things to help the refugees in Hong Kong. I mean, as long as we've got an ego, it's going to keep working. And if we keep on practicing um, meditation and the Dhamma, we may be able to reduce that ego. And what we do in the meantime, that's a matter of our own priority. What's most important? You know, I mean, there are certainly 
uh, degrees of, uh, you know, self-importance and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Intention is the most important. Yes. Uh, very difficult very difficult to find the true intention because we are not as long as we're deluded have self-delusion the intention is going to be deluded so what we can do is we can do that find the best intention at this stage in our lives and just go ahead with that and um, yes the action without the result that's absolutely right that's very important that's probably, probably the most important thing. Do the action, never mind the result. You see, again, when you look at the healthy ambition, the, what you said, you can look at it from two standpoints. The, the absolute standpoint, there is no healthy ambition. They're all unhealthy. That's absolute. But from a relative standpoint, surely there are some, and helping refugees in Hong Kong may may be one of the better ones. But that's from the relative standpoint. So, you know, wherever. Anything else?